I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond. And my guest for this podcast backstage is Imogen Kelly. She's Australia's Queen of Burlesque, crowned World Queen of Burlesque in 2012 at LA, Burlesque Hall of Fame in LA. Uh, She's an acclaimed writer, director, producer. Her shows include The Undressing Room, Her Story, Mr. Monster and Tarnished. She's got a show coming up at the Vanguard. It's La La Palo. She's got a background in a variety of styles, from Moulin Rouge to circus to burlesque. She's got a performing arts background with a BFA in performance at COFA, Diploma of Circus Arts from the UK, Diploma in Filmmaking from Sydney Uni, and NIDA degree in directing. She's got so much to talk about. She's travelled the world. Well, let me just tell you some of the places she's been. New York Burlesque Festival, New Mia Burlesque Festival, Burlesque Hall of Fame, Helsinki, New Orleans, Dallas, Austin, Toronto, Hamburg, Berlin, and on and on it goes. And she's here to talk to me about her life on the stage and how she got there. And also, you may recall her getting married in 2008 at Sydney Festival, Australia's Queen of Burlesque, Imogen Kelly. Oh, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So before we chat about getting back up on the stage and what it's been in the last year for performers, I want to get a sense of how you came to be burlesque performer in the first place. So where did you begin life? Were your parents creative? What was it like and where were you? Well, my parents were not even remotely creative. I think my mum might have been, but she died when I was quite young. So I was left with um, my father, who's a a very, he was a very powerful lawyer, and my stepmother, who's potentially even more powerful than um, being a Sicilian. And uh, from there, I don't know, I don't think they understood the creative pathway at all. So I was very alone with that and I don't know when it started. I think it's possibly a response to the the trauma of losing my mother but I think I was creative before then. I think her side of the family have always been a little bit, in inverted commas, wacky, Um, having, you know, inventors and opera singers and all sorts um, on that side of the family but I was disconnected from them. So, yeah, I don't know. So how long? (laughs) My genes. Yeah. How how old were you when your mum died? Do you mind me asking? Well, I was, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. I was nine years old. Oh. Um, and my way of, I oh, know, but my way of trying to enliven her in her decline was to do little shows for her. So that's really where it all started. Right. I was doing these little shows for my mum. And even after she passed, I still just kept making little shows for no one. Um, and then we moved into this house that actually had a stage. It had a ballroom and a stage, which sounds very amazing. Oh, wow. And I used to do these imaginary little shows with nobody on the stage and occasionally roping in my older brother, but he'd always take over and they'd do some play that resulted in me being, you know, a bad dog, for instance, and, <laughs> and I'd peed on the president's leg and then they'd bash me and my father thought that was hysterical. Oh, my God, Punch and Judy style or something. <laughs> it was a hard training ground. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, when did you come to decide to study and take it up or, did, or were you performing before you decided to go and study? Or like, and how did burlesque come about for you? Oh, gosh. Well, it's such a strange uh, journey because I used to, I went, my father sent me to a convent thinking that was going to oh line my. up some of the creases. <laughs> I know, but it did the opposite because I remember telling the careers advisor just to really provoke, just I was very, I liked 
being provocative and I like pushing people's buttons. And at careers day, she asked me what, what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, oh, I wanted to be a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> I was in year what, year nine. And then I'd gone out and got myself work experience with this troupe called the Sexations. But she was, there was no way anyone was going to let me do that. But I was, I was just so tired of people telling me how to be. I didn't actually think it would eventuate until, well, I left school. I had no money. I was trying to get through uni. I was studying film. And I fell in love with this gorgeous woman named Talisa who was running an event called Ms Wicked, looking for the wickedest woman in Australia. Mm. And it was, of course, underground queer, but it was the only place really for women to get up and explore performing with absolute, with no boundaries whatsoever, no you could do anything on those stages and anything did happen on those stages. But she's the one who got me interested in it. I really didn't think it would be a career path. Wow. And yet here we are. So what was it like then? Like what are the, some of the acts or the things that you recall or the vibe oh, of it? Gosh. Well, we we were both dancing in the cross. So we started to support ourselves through uni. We started yeah. dancing, um, through doing striptease in the cross. And that was at the like pre-Woods Commission, Royal Commission. So it was very corrupt times, very violent times. So yeah. we are going from that to then the queer scene, which was, yeah, again, it was underground. It was violent because of, no one understood AIDS. Like and the AIDS mm. epidemic was already happening, but no one was really doing much about it. Um, so we had that environment. It's kind of similar to now, and it was in the way that it was also a recession. So the scene was there was no money. There were no stages. There were no opportunities, especially for women. So we really had to make our own platforms, which was something really exciting because we didn't know what was not possible. We just were inventing this world, not realising, of course, now that it was on par, if not more amazing than anything that was happening globally. What was happening here in the Sydney Underground was so vibrant and political and amazing and wild that, it's only now that people are starting to go, oh, well, that was an amazing time. And it's like, yeah, actually, it was really incredible what we made and we didn't even realise we were making it. Mm. And the main thing we did was to take all those acts we were working on in the strip clubs, which in themselves were just <laughs> poking people in the eyes with, you know, being like we had like mo pink mohawks and matching pubic hair and, you know, Doc Martin boots because <laughs> no one wanted to be a stripper. So they just took whatever they could get. And our, our, our duo, our erotic duo involved things like being Beatle maniacs and just going on stage and screaming and screaming and screaming with these huge beehives and then having these water balloons in our knickers that we'd burst like we'd weed us. Because <laughs> we'd been reading about Beatle maniacs weeding themselves. So the men in the audience were all a little bit <laughs> not sure what they were getting, but they didn't get to choose. So anyway, we thought that was normal. <laughs> So it sounds like a couple of things are going on. You're being like commenting on the woman and the hysterica of the woman, but also the political kind of, I don't know, um, not the political gaze, but uh, the currency or the current times as well. There are a lot of levels to it. Yeah, absolutely. And when the, you're given no platforms and you're angry and you choose performance as mm. your language, uh, I don't know, it was it was. It, we, we, suddenly it just kind of blossomed like we had a whole crew of mm. people that were very that we were all having to work in some variation in the sex industry because it was the only place a girl with a mohawk could get work 
mm-hmm. um, but also we just didn't fit in anywhere and it was pre-pigeonholing, so it was before you had to have a little pigeonhole to fit in. We were just like, no, nah, you're not putting us in a pigeonhole. And it was it was quite an amazing time because it, now at the time we had no idea what we were doing, but now I look back and go, oh, we were just responding to a world that was in a, a state of decline and, and trying mm. to f- create a visibility for ourselves and other women. Uh, and, of course, it was the queer scene that was open to that. Yeah, and I, I imagine it's very kind of, well, not just liberating but empowering. Yeah, it didn't feel that way. No. Um, because at that time too, like the dyke scene was coming out of this sort of first wave feminist stage of all like lipstick, heels, all of those signs of femininity are tied, were tied to the male gaze mm. and our discussion was that, no, we are choosing these things for ourselves because that's how we relate to our femininity. And, but we were also taking the piss out of it all because all our mentors were drag queens. <laughs> the people yes. who were really prepared to take us on board were the, were the most amazing performers and they all were dying of HIV. So mm. it was, it was um, yeah, I don't know, we just had to forge our own voice. Yeah. And I think what we forged was really, really special. We're... we're like historically, where does burlesque come from? Is it from the strip or is it older and older? Or? It's much older yeah. than that. Yeah. And we did have it here and, and people don't realise that. We're part of the British colony very much so. So there was a burlesque circuit here. Yeah. And burlesque started in many places in the late 18, 1800s. But here I found evidence of it earlier than that, 1853, sometimes 1833, although it was very racist. Um, We can't just just sort of say that didn't happen because we don't like those sensibilities. It it did exist here. And what it was was essentially lower-class people attacking the upper classes and attacking a very oppressive world by doing satire and parody. And it was about cross-dressing and it was about gender play and it was about sticking your finger up, middle finger up at the norms of society and women having to be ladies. And so you had women getting up in cod pieces and stockings at a time Mm. when you weren't even supposed to show a bit of ankle. So very wild and very fun and very effective. And when uh, it was Lydia Thompson's Blondes, like Americans take a lot of credit for this, but that's only because we haven't, you know that they talk about their history they celebrate it whereas everybody else is like oh how embarrassing we took our clothes off whereas america's <laughs> just like no that was great yeah <laughs> so they had a troop uh a troop guy over from england called lydia thompson's blondes and america just seemed to explode from there everybody suddenly went oh burlesque what is this thing it's women being vulgar and fabulous and theatrical yeah. and and skilled as well a lot of skill involved and show of athleticism at times, which was seen as ew, unfeminine. Yeah. But it really did a lot and it continues to do a lot to break down those ideals of, of what a woman has to be. So I think it's it's still a very potent art form. Um, yeah, so it continued to evolve from there and then bump and grind became slowly a part of that. So like the strip tease became mm. a part of that and to the point that it became the norm in burlesque. 
and you had comedians, like often male comedians as well. So your lineup would be a novice. So you, and this is what I try and stick to with the La La Parlor, yeah. um, which I am performing at, but I'm also pre- trying to present and okay. create an opportunity for all of us. It's, it's just hard. Yeah. But you'd have your novice, like someone just starting out, and then you'd have your comedians, you'd have live musicians, which we don't have, unfortunately, because it's it's about affordability um, yeah. at this point we hope to get them soon yeah. but then it, it would also have two or three striptease performers um and that became hugely successful and sort of globalized from there and then it went all sort of downhill i think feminism sadly played a part in that you mean the backlash of of so the, is that kind of the backlash yeah of being a woman yeah, and that's not yeah, in power you know yeah right okay yeah, the criticism that the sex industry received actually drove, it took away a lot of people's rights. And yeah. so a lot of what my work has been is to restore those rights of those performers and sort of get the world to understand that, no, we're, you know, striptease performers are still performers by law and yeah. you cannot continue to throw us or anyone else under the bus. That includes sex workers because it doesn't suit your sensibilities. These are still human beings. And you don't have to engage in any of these activities if you don't want to, but this is entertainment. And we so it was this it's sort of come full circle, really, in my lifetime. But yeah, the feminists and then AIDS, I think, were just really mm-hmm. uh, this is what I'm gleaning from my um, from discussions with American legends, we call them legends, the older performers yeah. of the day. And they just say, yeah, those were the things that really destroyed it. And also the competition, like people competing with each other. Um, as performers by showing more and more and more and doing more and more gratuitous things to the point that um, and where do you go then yeah well because we lost a lot of our rights as performers it led to a lot of exploitation and intimidation by organized crime and that whole thing happened and it just went it just nosedived and that's where I sort of joined in the late 90s. It was definitely at the bottom of a, under the late 80s, sorry. It was definitely at the bottom of a pit. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of helping it it rise again as an art form has been a really amazing journey. But it's a discussion with society about ownership of women's bodies and about how exploitation and intimidation actually are major factors in how the sex industry can work if you don't stay across it. And, the, the, you know, this basic human rights stuff. It's a pretty big discussion uh, that burlesque has with the world uh, because it does come down essentially, I guess, to ownership of the body. That's right. That's what I was going to say. Mm. Is that- and commodification of the body and all those things. So it, it, at the moment burlesque is sitting very easily and very comfortably within a sort of middle class level mm. of discussion and it's quite educated people having those discussions, which is a really amazing turnaround again to watch the academics take this on so that's it's it's an exciting art form and it's a thrill to always be a part of it (laughs) (laughs) it's certainly a roller coaster depending on what society needs and what our reflections are what what our responses are to society you're listening to stages i'm regina botros and i am talking with burlesque performer imogen kelly You've travelled the world and done it and seen other acts all over the world. How does Australia now sit in, in relationship to the world? Australia's always created really, really incredible cabaret performers. I don't think Australia realised how, how absolutely spoiled it is, but we do tend to generate 
really amazing short format circus and and cutting edge like we're mm. we're often ahead of the rest of the world um it's difficult here to press that point but the minute i start touring it's very evident that we've got uh, particularly my work i think it has a very different level of um theatricality of professional presentation it's not just mm. about bump and grind or the body it it goes into all these other places and I think that's Australia's reputation is that we're we're amazing I guess some artists really really push those boundaries that this is just about sex or just about the body and there's nothing wrong with it being about that but my discussion is also always about how creative this can be and how amazing it can be because essentially you're removing layers, which gives you all these opportunities to, uh, to to unveil, to reveal, to shed, to leave things behind. It's, it can be quite significant and symbolic what you're throwing on the floor. Mm. Uh, it can be a beautiful gown. And then you remove all these things. I think even at its bare basics, you're taking off all these things that the patriarchy have said, you need this to fit in and you need this to be beautiful. And they all end up on the floor. It's quite amazing. And then all we're left with at the end is somebody who's at their bare bones, uh, you know, they, they've got a G-string and pasties on. It's not that gratuitous anymore. But we're just left with that person. And it's it's very powerful. It's a very powerful statement for women, I think, in particular. Mm, indeed. Have you gotten yourself into any uncomfortable situations? Was it confronting? You know, you're confronting people and are they confronted you? Sometimes. I find a big one uh, has been ageism. And, right. and that's that's continued all the way through is that some people, we, we have a few older performers in America, it's easy, they, and in Europe, there's always a place for older performers within any performing mm. genre. But in Australia, when we have put on older performers, um, yeah, I remember one time there was nearly a punch-up over it because they were like, oh, we don't like the old girl. It's like, well, too bad. That's who we're putting on our stage. If you don't like it, you don't have to watch. You can leave for that time, but we're not going to stop putting on older performers knowing that one day that would be us. And it yeah. still seems to be something that we're not sure of. Like, can we put older performers on stage within this genre? But Elizabeth Burton, who is one of my heroes, yes. is still on and off the stage. She's 65, still gives talks. I don't know, I shouldn't give her age away. Got to break this down because otherwise it's a very limited career that we're all living. Mm. And in some ways you supporting that kind of ageism by not standing up for your age, I suppose, you know, in a way. So do you have... Different characters? Are, you, are there many parts of Imogen Kelly? Many oh, personalities? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, I just documented. I'm in the process of documenting all my acts. So we're up to number 30 and there's another 15 acts or something left to document. But my favourite is probably, and the one I'm best known for is Marie Antoinette, where I, I do my, it's a political satire, my version of, of Marie Antoinette, and it is burlesque in that true satirical sense that I am taking the piss out of out of I guess privilege and mm. the extreme of white privilege by, by being this woman who's says I let them eat cake and mm. I pretend that the audience are the starving peasants mm -hmm. and I ask them if they'd like some cake and they all go yes and I bring out the cake and they all want some but I end up just sitting in it 
and doing the splits in it and break dancing in it and then offering it again and nobody wants it by that time. So <laughs> sort of like, you know, it's it's a really fun, she's a really horrible queen. I also do Margaret, I do a whole Her Story series, so I do all women yes. in history. And it's always the horrible women that are so fun to play because yeah. I do Margaret Thatcher and I just get so much joy out of being such a horrible person and then asking for empathy when she gives none. It's a really... Um, it's a really fun act yeah. and people hate her and they love hating somebody, so <laughs> I'm happy to give them that person. I do Lindy Chamberlain, which is, oh, wow. is very is very touch and go doing Lindy mm, Chamberlain because mm. I simply I play out the rumours about these women and the rumour, oh, the, the rumour mill we put Lindy Chamberlain through. I just go, okay, so I'm going to play it out for you as it happened, but I play it out as the media said it happened. Oh, great. And everyone's just in, in, in shock by the end of it. I mean, they're laughing, but they're also like, no, actually what you're laughing at is yourself. Exactly. Uh, or yourself, ourselves, that we we put this woman through that mm. and it's not actually very funny at all. This is mm. trial by media as it was then and that's that was the outcome. Yeah. So tell me about the show that's coming up at the Vanguard. You've got, uh, like you say, a lineup. Tell me what's happening. I am getting up, and I, there's one act I can't do. I was hoping to do it, oh, I see. but um, I'm not going to be able to do the aerial act. But I am oh. doing my the the act that won me World Queen of Burlesque, which is called Flamingo Go. So I'm doing that one, and and then one other I've left up to the audience to choose who they want, but I'm thinking it might be either Marie Antoinette or Claire de Lune, which is another very famous act. I think it's got the highest amount of hits on YouTube than any act, any burlesque act in the world because it's, oh. it's a very unusual sculptural piece. It's very beautiful. Um, and then we've got a sideshow performer named Mr. Mr. Gorski, and Dan is incredible. He's, uh, I guess, essentially a juggler, but he's he's been on kids' shows and stuff like that. I can't remember the name of the kids' show, but it was one of those ABC kids' shows. Oh, yeah. He's absolutely incredible, Dan. And I'm so fortunate to have him because normally normally we're all away. We're all touring yeah. endlessly and we're all interstate or overseas, but everyone's here right now. So I can go, all right, I'm going to put the perfect cast together. Um, we've got Kellyanne Dole, if you know of Kellyanne's swing yes. dancing. She's just incredible, mm-hmm. the pocket rocket herself. Yeah. And I have a newcomer in, as my novice, uh, Josefina Glover, who's going to do a handstand contortion act and hula hoops. Wow. Um, so I cannot wait to see her act. <laughs> and who else have I got? I've chose uh, also one of my fellow burlesque performers. Shiva Williams is incredible. She's going to sing for us mm. and I don't know what she's going to do. I know she does a Josephine Baker number, but she's just great on the mic oh. and she's She's just all force and power, Sheba. So I'm looking very forward to having Sheba Williams. And finally, as I said, I've got Bunny Lambada, who's who's my ilk in, in terms of her humour. She's going to do mm. another burlesque piece. And I, I have left it up to her to decide what it is, but she does brilliant comedy. So I'm just it's just a jam-packed night of yeah. fun and hilarity, which I think is what people really need. We do need it. I think yes. people just really need to come together and have a laugh and forget their problems just for that's my job is to help you forget your problems for a few hours mm. and just give you an, an opportunity to gather with your girlfriends or have a party or just come out and have some bubbles and 
and enjoy being in human company again because I think we've all missed out on that for a whole year. Indeed. And you mentioned Drew Fairley's your MC, and people might have seen him streaming from lockdown on the on the cruise ship. Hilarious. Imogen Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're so welcome. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, that was the gorgeous Imogen Kelly burlesque performer, director, presenter, and she's putting on La La Parlor at the Vanguard on the 1st of April. Get along and see it if you can. 